Okay, welcome to the very first Idea Market podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis, uh, where we invest your attention as carefully as if it were your money. Uh, we would like to welcome our honored guest for this first podcast, the inaugural episode of Idea Market podcast, technologist, futurist, Hindu warrior priest, founder of Materium, and all-around okay guy, Mr. Vinay Gupta. Thanks very much for joining us. Good to be here. Um... So uh, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I quite qualify as a warrior priest, but I certainly have fought a number of engagements, mostly on the internet. Maybe warrior troll priest. Perfect, perfect. We just need all the all the hyphens in there, and we're good. Yeah, one word hyphen. I mean, I didn't question the intro. Mike sent this over to me. I read the words Hindu warrior hey, priest. I, I didn't I, question it. I was there we go. I, I did. I did write it. I was once called a master of Nepalese magic in an official Department of Defense blog. See, I think that qualifies. Vinay Gupta, you know, scientist, author, futurist, master of Nepalese magic. I was not going to say no, because at the end of the day, who but a master of Nepalese magic would wind up called by the Department of Defense a master of Nepalese magic? You know, even if it wasn't true when you started, by the time that some august body like that has decided it's true, it's obvious that the magic has worked. It's kind of like a self-certifying credential. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. It is sort of Godelian, post-normal, post-rational, swamp-like way. So, Vinay, uh, before we before we do jump in, for those you know, I'm I'm aware that you have quite a wide wide presence, quite a big presence online. But for those who don't know you, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is, and uh, yeah, what it is you do. Um, so I've done a number of things over the years. Uh, in this kind of phase of my game, uh, I am CEO of a company called Materium. And Materium exists to um, basically bring all the world's physical property onto the blockchain as tradable assets with very strong provenance and also documentation of what the thing is. And the objective is to produce a kind of hyper-liquid commerce, which sort of does for commerce um, what social media did, did for media. Right? If you could buy and sell things with equal ease, right? you take the books on your bookshelf, if you can order a book from Amazon and take delivery or sell a book off your bookshelf and send it out with exactly the same faculty, what will happen is it will stop winding up with these enormous repositories of disused material, which are eating environmental resources to come into existence um, and are also eating capital because they're sitting there unused. So the kind of vision here is distributed by directional commerce where every single thing that you buy, you expect to sell again at some point in its life rather than the current model, which is we've got this kind of weird myth of we just store it forever, which actually means that we die, we leave it to our kids and they throw it in a landfill. Um, so it's a, it's a vision of a different relationship between people and things, and the blockchain is what supports the kind of decentralized nature of that vision. Before that, I spent, I don't know, since really the time since uh, 9-11, working on worst-case scenario planning for environmental crisis and a variety of unfortunate events like, oh, pandemics. Oh, pandemics, right. I've, I remember seeing... Uh probably 10 or 20 hours of pandemic prep video on YouTube of, of yours from 2008 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of stuff out there. The Gupta State, Gupta State Failure Management Archive, there was a bunch of pandemic papers. and Yeah, I mean, we knew it was coming. We knew what needed to be done and nobody listened to anybody and the result was what we got. 
Uh, it has not been a particularly successful pandemic response. Right. That kind of speaks to um, the core of our concerns as well, in that the current information age is not one of lacking information. It's not the case that we don't know what we have to do. We don't know what we can do. We don't know uh, what's worth hoping for. We have all of these things, but we're not focused on the right ones. There's this big gap between where most of our attention is and the actual best stuff out there on any given topic. And this applies to virtually everything. Um, So along those lines, I've been particularly appreciative of your a talk that you gave on spreading ideas. You helped with the Ethereum launch. You, uh, of course, spread a lot of ideas uh, with the Hexier concept and stuff like that. I'm wondering what your latest thinking is on that and how maybe you're applying that to Materium, pandemic stuff, whatever's relevant at the moment. Hmm. Um, so you heard of Black Swans, right? This notion of these st- statistically improbable events, which nonetheless have outsized impacts. Yeah. Um, my thinking on this uh, really has only sharpened in the last 10 years in that I think that what is important is not so much the black swans as the black elephants. And what is a black elephant? A black elephant is the elephant in the room, which will go on the rampage and then everybody will insist after it has gone on the rampage that it was a black swan and nobody could have seen it coming. So we have known that there was a very high probability that we were going to see an airborne respiratory tract infection type pandemic. That's been assumed to be coming for more than my entire life. You know, we've seen big flus come through about every 30 years for the whole of recorded human history. You know, we've watched these things stewing in the corners with things like bird flu. You know, everybody in the business is like, oh my God, it's only a matter of time. Then we saw SARS, then we saw MERS. You know, the kind of heightening probability of a big viral event was just cranking and cranking and cranking. Everybody that had been in that business was like, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. Then it arrived, and the governments act as if they've never ever possibly considered that such a thing could occur. The vast gap between how prepared we you know, theoretically were and how prepared we acted could be interpreted as malicious or deliberately incompetent, or it could be interpreted as accidental incompetence or some incentive problem or something like that. Uh, but since that debate might never be settled, my question is, how can uh, anyone sort of help society become immune to this problem, regardless of what the cause is? How can we sort of compel attention in the right directions? So this is a fitness for purpose problem, right? Um, It wasn't just the US, which was run by ass clowns that screwed it up. It was all of the countries, right? Other than New Zealand, could you point to a single country that really got on top of this thing? Vietnam did amazingly well. So you got New Zealand, you got Vietnam, but like France, disaster, Germany, disaster, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, disaster, Finland, disaster, UK, disaster, Ireland, disaster, you know, Canada, Mexico, like Russia, South Africa, like all of the big countries, India, right? China, China, how did China do? Not as badly as they could have done, but still not great, right? Japan, right? Clobbered. Nobody's going to get to look at the Olympics because it turns out they're just too afraid of COVID-D. So that as a a situation, like if every major government on earth with maybe half a dozen exceptions totally screwed the pooch on this thing, 
you know, what does that tell us to expect from the response from climate change? Yeah. Given that, uh, hopefully, we have a little more latency to correct course on climate change than we did to a, a, a fast-spreading pandemic, what are the kinds of, of pressure points we can, can push on to bring attention to the right places in time? Oh, in time was 20 years ago. Right. We've missed the boat on fixing anything to do with climate change, and we are about to slam face first into that thing. 100%. Yeah, by the, by the time Portland, Oregon is 50 Celsius, 50 Celsius in Portland. You know, by the time that's happening, the climate change has happened. You can no longer prevent it. And all the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere is going to continue to produce batshit insane weather until the carbon's been metabolized back out of the atmosphere, either naturally or artificially. And we're still continuing to contaminate the atmosphere with another 24 gigatons of carbon a year. Right? We are completely fucked. And how do you get people to pay attention to the fact that we're completely fucked? Because nobody wants to think we're completely fucked, but we're completely fucked. Right? We are now outside of the safe operating envelope for the planet. And we're continuing to throw the carbon out at 24 gigatons a year. Oh my God, we are screwed. And people don't understand this. But at the point where we realize how badly screwed we are, you know, that's the first thing that has to happen before we're capable of changing it. How do we get people to relate to and face grotesquely unpleasant truths? Yeah. It's hard. It's an interesting um, point to be had there with those two, the two concepts that you brought in, right? The, the black swan and the black elephant, your own concept there, you know, this idea that we're all ignoring this obvious truth. But it seems that the climate change problem is actually a bit of both. There's a, there's a whole host of people who know full well it's a big problem and are trying to change it. But there's a load of other people who are still going on about their business, but equally know it's a problem, but just don't want to admit to it. So my question, I guess my question to, to you would be that one is, it's the huge question, which is, why do we ignore these black elephants? Hmm. And two, you know, what, what, what do you think is to be done in relation to that answer? Hmm. You know, why, why is it that we ignore them? And then how can we sort of alter the reason why we ignore them so we no longer actually do? So back in the day, um, roughly 10% of women died in childbirth. And over the course of having three, four, five, six, eight kids, um, you know, a huge percentage of the female population died in childbirth. Now, this was not true for all societies, but it was certainly true for Victorian London, which had horrendous practices around childbirth and, you know, like doctors didn't wash their hands. And I mean, it was just, it was kind of an apocalyptic worst case. But for example, there are a lot of countries in Africa today which have very, very high rates of maternal mortality. Right? South America, a couple of countries, you know, there are places where it's just super dangerous to have babies. Somehow people continue to manage it. You know, if you know that there are alligators in the water, you know, if you don't go and get go down to get water, everyone is gonna die. And if you do go down to get water, the alligator is only going to eat one of you, and you know, 30 people are going to get water. So I think that human beings are unfortunately deeply biologically pre-programmed to go and get the water out of the alligator-infested pit and to continue to have babies regardless of how dangerous it appears to be at the time. We're programmed to be risk-blind um, because if you're living out 
as a monkey on the fields way back in the day and you know before we'd invented fire you know almost everything you do is going to get you killed and you just have to breed faster than you die and that's evolutionary success so i think that we're in a position where what's happening is a lot of people are still acting as if the objective is to breed faster than we die and that doesn't really work for meta-systemic problems like climate change you know there is this thing of like look if i just pay attention to the fashion papers and I skip everything else, there's a decent chance I'm going to make it through this lifetime and have three grandchildren, at which point biological success, evolution is happy, we won. And that might even be true, right? But it's still going to leave us with like a two billion person death toll from climate change. You know, we need to start taking risks seriously because we need to start looking at the danger rather than looking around the danger. It sounds like you're seeing uh climate change and and this sort of uh focus problem i i can't help but interpret everything from an idea market lens because i'm kind of like looking <laughs> staring through that glass of water all the time for sure and uh one of the things i i love to say is we want to treat common knowledge as a risk management problem we want to have everyone constantly evaluating the landscape of possibilities and risks and looking for the thing that will improve common knowledge, looking for the thing that will uh, be a worthy replacement for the things that we're focusing on now. Um, it sounds like in this sort of fashion magazine versus 2 billion deaths you know, sort of scenario, uh, on a personal level, it may be you know, perfectly safe to, to just focus on the fashion magazine. And on a collective level, there has to be some kind of um, curation process or trickle-down effect of having our priorities straight. Uh, that will maybe enable more people to look at that fashion magazine and have have less of a uh, negative externality from it. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a, an economics by which we decide our social priorities. You know, you have elections, and the elections are run on a fabulously corrupt basis on corporate money. You know, like if you don't succeed in raising billions of dollars for corporations, you can never run for U.S. president. As a result, the corporations get to decide who is eligible to try and become president, which is not the same thing as deciding who will become president, but they do have complete control over who will not become president. See what I'm saying? Right? The corporations have to at least assent to giving somebody enough money to make a presidential run, otherwise that person does not run for president. Well, you know, major corporations, you know, budgets are designed, done in quarters. And climate change is a 20-year problem. How do you get an entity that thinks in three-month time windows to consider a 20-year problem that is not going to take effect until long after they reach retirement? And we tried that. And we tried and we tried and we tried to make the corporations wise up and be accountable and change their practices and all the rest of that stuff. Nobody was willing to legislate corporate behavior in any substantive way on climate because the governments were already paid off by the corporations. And the corporations weren't willing to take the long view because the corporations are assessed based on the needs of the shareholders in these three-month windows. As a result, total paralysis while the corporations continue to emit carbon for the critical 20 years in which we had a chance to avoid millions to hundreds of millions of people dying of climate change. Yeah. Right? What we're looking at here is literally a holocaust. Well, let's... Uh, and Let's... Uh, sorry, go on. Let's... Uh, no, no, no problem. I just I wanted to shift the conversation slightly to something uh, more 
uh, optimistic, such as childhood starvation. I wanted to ask you about this because you wrote an article a while back uh, saying that arguing that we should have a new standard of social uh, prosperity and that standard should be how we treat children, how we treat people who are vulnerable and have basically no rights in the public square. And uh, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. This is the article about human rights for children. Yeah, human rights for children. The reason I loved this was because it resonates with this sort of three-pronged criteria I like to apply true, surprising, and important, mm-hmm. that this is not something that we think about a lot in the public square as like a, a point of leverage by which we might uh, reorganize our standards and, and improve mm. our priorities in a certain way. But I think our treatment of children as, as a culture, because it's so voluntary, is a great measure of, uh, of, of priorities and a great sort of beacon around which we can organize things. I was wondering if you can elaborate on uh, your, your case for that and where you see it going. Sure. So, you know, to understand where we are, right, r- requires us to think about what we're baking into the future right now. Right. And what we're baking into the future right now is, you know, 24,000, 24 billion tons of carbon a year more than the Earth can absorb go into the atmosphere every year. Right. And we're already at the point where, you know, 50 Celsius in Portland, that's kind of a problem. Right. If we had seen 50 Celsius in Iowa, it would have wiped out US corn production. And then you have a real problem. Right. So, that additional 24 gigatons a year that we're putting out, every single year we continue to do that makes the average existence of every child on Earth worse and less probable to reach adulthood. Right? We're literally taking the curve of the future and we're burning resources in the present so fast that we're just ramping down future expected net quality of life every single year that we continue with the current status quo. Right? Because we're not willing to take the hit ourselves, we're passing that hit on to future generations. So it sounds like uh, the human rights for children idea is a way of sort of sneaking around the climate change uh, moniker, which people are familiar with and kind of tired of being hit over the head with. And like they've already kind of decided to push it aside. But if you give people this new uh, potent sort of angle to approach it with, it ends up having the same effect while feeling like a fresh new imperative. Am I kind of feeling that right? Or do you see it differently? We have a huge grab bag of issues related to the human rights of children. Compulsory education being administered by the state but being of a crappy standard, I think you could argue that's a human rights problem. Um, We have gigantic problems identifying and prosecuting sexual abuse cases. That's a human rights problem. Um, We have a whole bunch of problems with whether or not children get to vote. Right. You're going to get a very different world if you get 12-year-olds voting. You're going to get an even more different world if you get 9-year-olds voting. And at the end of the day, they're affected by these decisions just like everybody else is, and they're going to have to live with those decisions far longer. Why aren't they allowed to vote? Right? I mean, if we let stupid people vote... Yeah, if you let stupid people vote, being able to explain the issues to children uh, will make it easier for the adults to make clear decisions as well, given just the amount of... Uh, right twisting that goes into framing the issues in the first place in order to be deceptive, in order to engineer uh, 
preferential results of one or another lobbyist. Uh, by by making it possible for children to vote, we may be increasing the clarity of adult you know voting as well. One would hope, right? One would hope. So, you know, I, this notion of like. You just look at all the places where society is failing to think about the future. You think of that as being about human rights for kids. Hugely clarifies. Greta Thunberg does a very, very good job of making it clear that she would quite like for the future not to be so broken that she has to ditch high school to go out there and try and make sure that she grows up in a world where the systems that provide our food and our water continue to function. You know? <clears throat> knocking on the door like, excuse me, I've just noticed that you're going to leave me starving to death as an adult, and I'm very unhappy about this. Why does nobody seem to care whether I live or die? And, you know, she got a couple of years of shut up, little girl, and now she's in a position where the World Trade Organization, not World Trade Organization, who was it? It's the uh, World Economic Forum? Austrian Economic Forum, you know. They invite Greta Thunberg in, and she's become like the ritualized tearing off of the faces you know, and she's getting increasingly pissed off and increasingly interested in making clear that the entire system is disenfranchised. She's begun to say, look, we can't play by the rules because the rules of the game are the problem. And at some point, Greta Thunberg is going to start telling you what the rules ought to be. And if people follow her, we're in the full-scale revolt of the young against the old over climate change. Okay, I want, just to bring this back to the problem of attention, I mean, there's... There's a couple of things I'd bring in there. So one with the Greta Thunberg thing is that the the World Economic Forum routinely rolls out uh, usually a young girl every 10 or 20 so years as a sort of a spokesperson. And I think really the attention needs to be not on what they're saying, but whether or not anything actually comes from it. And it's almost as if they're simply using these people to as a front, whereas they can just continue doing what they're doing. Which brings me to the problem that which, that which we brought up about the regulation problem, and I'll, I'll be interested to see where you 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 sit on this, Vinay. You know, often it's brought in from both sides, and they both have different opinions on this, which is the problem of agency. So, on the one side, you can say there's people who say, right, we need to regulate the corporations who are firing out all this carbon. We need to regulate the companies, the businesses, and the corporations. On the other side, there are the people who are saying, well, that might work, but equally, we need to remember that it is the consumers who do purchase these products, and therefore. Uh, bolster the continued carbon output if if they weren't purchased the corporations wouldn't output all the carbon so the the attempt you know do, do you think the attention needs to be more on the corporations or do you need to think the attention needs to be on how as consumers we can actually alter our mindset to not desire these things which do pump out increased carbon or do you think it's a bit of both it's neither okay <laughs> It's it's one hundred percent the government, right? It's one hundred percent the government. What should we be pressuring the governments to do? Uh, maybe along that dichotomy, or uh, like, what, what, is it a regulation on 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 consumption or on production that's more important? So, I mean, there are fifty five different things that you can do to try and get civilization into a sustainable flight envelope. You know, like right now, we're basically just flying the plane into a mountain range and everybody's saying, like, well, as long as we can have one more round of cocktails first, we don't mind. This is not acceptable. You know, the, the first thing is, right, the issue of public attention, right? The position that we're in is extraordinarily bad, right? I mean, my, my backyard here, right? 
it's been unseasonably hot in London, like 93, 95 Celsius, uh, Fahrenheit, sorry, not Celsius, um, say 32 Celsius, right? This is hot. Right? For London, that's really quite hot. Um, if it was another five or six degrees warmer for a sustained period, and it has been that hot in London last year, it hit like 36, 37 degrees. If it was that hot out here for a sustained period, all the trees and grass out in my backyard would die. And the next year, they wouldn't grow back, right? You'd get scrub or something else, but you would not get the big old trees and you would not get, you know, the kind of nice lawn and all the rest of it would be dead. Um, when that happens to your agricultural fields, you starve. That simple, right? So for me, as I look out the window, uh, you know, like the grass is going a little yellow, that's the point where you sort of think like, oh, we might have a problem. Like, this is a bad thing. And then you've got this 10, 20 year overshoot with this enormous emission of carbon that will continue to cause warming. Even if we stop today, we still have to live with this and it will get worse. So how do we get people to snap out of this haze of thinking that things are all right when they're not? Right. Um, I think both of you guys are probably a little bit young to remember uh, AIDS activism in the 1980s. Correct. So AIDS activism in the 1980s is kind of what it looks like when people have realized that they're going to die unless something changes. And I think that ACT UP is, you know, largely responsible for setting the cultural tone of AIDS activism, which was incredibly effective at taking AIDS from being something that governments were ignoring to something that was being really acted on. You know, they made an enormous difference because their lives were on the line and they were the ones who were going to die and they needed something done right now. Um, and they were enormously irritating to groups like the um, FDA. You know, you used to have people who would break into FDA offices and handcuff themselves to desks, and then they would stand there watching the FDA people do their jobs and, you know, saying things like, you know, do you really need to take that tea break? You know, I'm dying here. Could you, could you please hurry up? Because the FDA was taking so long to approve, uh, approve drug trials. It seems like part of the challenge is tying these decade scale problems to day scale situations to make it more tangible in this regard, especially given that when there are localized uh, disasters as a result of climate change, there's still enough prosperity elsewhere to sort of rebalance and make the daily effects not really felt. Like when the uh, COVID pandemic was happening, or, or the hysteria around it was happening in America and everyone was rushing to buy toilet paper and masks and this and that. There was this felt daily sense of urgency about it uh, because we didn't really have you know, the liquidity to move toilet paper from here to there and make it feel like everything was fine. But we still sort of have that with agriculture uh, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you have any ideas for bringing the time scale Mm -hmm. of awareness down from decades to days in that similar sort of way and mm -hmm. give people you know a, a a compassionate sense of urgency a uh does that make sense hmm. why do we compassionate i don't think we need that part just a sense of urgency will do okay i mean i've i've i mean compassionate to distinguish from actively withholding things and removing things in order to you know deprive people and make them freak out Mm, I see. No, I think I think we want people freaking out. We want people panicking because if they don't panic, they're all going to die. Panic is necessary. This is the time to panic. Actually, the time to panic was 15 years ago. I started panicking in 2001. 
you know, the reason I've got 20 years of work on how to manage relocation of hundreds of millions of people in the event of a you know, severe climate disaster is because I started on that work 20 years ago when everybody was serenely sailing around like somebody else was going to fix this. I decided that I was going to fix this because nobody else was coming. And I was right. 20 years in, there is still no large-scale systemic effort at the UN level or the governmental level to figure out how to move hundreds of millions of people from the areas that climate change is going to make completely uninhabitable. And the default position here is that all of those people die. If we don't make a plan, we have simply planned for a genocide. And that's where we really are. Yeah. Now, the unwillingness of the news media to talk about climate change properly 20 years ago is why today we're in a position where we're headed directly dead into a genocide. Right? If the news media every day started with today's carbon emissions were this, on the current projection, you've got why long before that turns into an uninhabitable, you know, an agriculturally collapsed planet. You know, nothing has been done about this for the last eight years. The last measure was taken was this, and that measure failed. If that was the top line item of the news every single goddamn day, do you think we would still be fighting climate change with two arms tied behind our back, rolling on little girls to do the frontline combat? We can all agree that uh, corporate media's management of our attention has been disastrous for as long as they've uh, existed, apparently. And that actually gives me a certain hope that uh, we may not be as bad at managing problems as we've been uh, engineered to be as a culture, as a society. Sure. Uh, for example, a tweet that you sent, uh, I loved. It was about the recent uh, corporate media coverage of UFOs. And you said something like, is it possible that the tech on these UFOs mm -hmm. can become a new energy source uh, that can basically solve climate change immediately and end all these unnecessary emissions and provide power to the whole world uh, in a way that's never been seen before? And given that, for example, Nikola Tesla invented wireless electricity 100 years ago and wanted to give it to the whole world. And now 100 years later, the best we can do about wireless energy is charge our cell phone from a pad with a wire plugged into it. It seems like there may yet remain an enormous gap between the tech we have the ability to harness and where our attention and our production efforts are going. Um, how, how optimistic are you about UFOs and about you know bridging that gap between what we could potentially do technically and what we've been doing. So I mean I guess the first thing here is that you've got to accept that the UFO thing is no longer where it was six months ago. <clears throat> you know, six months ago the US government did not have the position of UFOs are real. We've seen them with radar, we've seen them optically, we've seen them on multi-sensor networks, we've seen them with multiple different vehicles with independent sensor systems looking at the same object. These things are real. And we've got a bunch of cases where they move around in ways that we don't have physics to explain. That is now official US government reality. That's where we are. Right? <clears throat> Notably, pretty much the entire UFO community is totally uninterested in that story. Right? And it's not like, oh yeah, we knew for years. No, they were interested in a conspiracy where the government was hiding something from them. When the government is like, no, you were right, it is all real. The response is not like, great, let's get started. The response is like, yeah, I'm going to pay attention to Bigfoot now. Right. But, you know, we're operating in a world where the UFO thing is actually true. Yeah. It's really, really there. Yeah. We've got the data. Do you think that's because the, uh, the UF, generally UFO culture has a history of distrusting the government? Every time the government's released something on UFOs, it's come out about 10, 20 years later that it was uh, 
just a new iteration of something they were working on, and they used the UFO thing to cover up that it was something they were working on. So the technology that we were using for, say, like fighter jets or whatever is covered up as a as an excuse. So no one then investigates that thing. Right. I mean, I it's certainly plausible that the U.S. government has some kind of you know weird technology that allows it to do these things, right? You know, they would have had to figure out some new physics, but, you know, like we've had 70 years since we invented nuclear bombs, so there's a lot of time to have done new physics in that period. Um, I think a lot of it is personality type. You know, like if you're a conspiracy theorist, the last thing you want to be doing is singing off the same hymn sheet as the US government. You know, you're in it to point the finger at the bad guy and say they're lying to us. Well, okay, now they're not lying to you. I guess they're not lying to you in the way they were lying to you. They're telling you a partial truth rather than denying everything. How's about we meet them halfway? No, oh, that's not our game. That's not why we're in this. It's, it's not the emotional register of their activity. Sure. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And just psychoanalyzing myself as a, as a UFO amateur you know, researcher and stuff like that, is that there is this sort of sense of pressure. You enjoy the tension between what the party line is and what you're looking into. And when the government says, oh yeah, all that stuff, it's, it's, it's totally real. Like when they make it official, it sort of lets the air out of the balloon. It you know, takes the tension out of that relationship. So you have to go to look for something else to get that kick. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, it seems like there's room here for actual activism to come in about UFO tech, about new physics. Why aren't we like pushing on those leverage points? Why aren't we exploiting what clearly is possible? Yeah. Why aren't there new industries and venture capital springing up all over the world immediately once it becomes clear that this is all within the realm of possibility? Even even for the physicists, right? Like, you know, how big a collider do you have to build before you can see as much new physics as there is in the Navy radar details about the flight of these UFOs? Precisely. Right. And why isn't the physics community just like, okay, give us all the sensor data. We, you know, like we're going to use this stuff in the same way that we would data that we got out of a super collider. Yeah. And extrapolate. And extrapolate, right? If if we can see something do this, then the following has to be true about the laws of physics, right? Well, if it did this and it did this, then the, what must be happening is that. And suddenly we've got a whole bunch of input about physics that we don't currently have because these are experiments that we can't perform ourselves, but we can certainly see them being performed. Yeah. And it strikes me as still an attention problem that we have the the government coming out and, and officially endorsing things, mm-hmm. but they're actually not endorsing things that hasn't already been public information often for decades. And there's often uh, patents filed in ownership of the Secretary of the US Navy that reflect some of the abilities that these reports are describing. The information is all there. It's that there's no sort of economic or political will in the direction of exploiting it uh, to the extent that we could. With all of this, you know, the the crux of it is it is an attention problem, but it's a paradigmatic attention problem. You know, people carry a paradigm that life is basically fine when it's not. They carry around a paradigm that UFOs are not really real, or if they are real, they're not important, when they're sort of central to everything. You know, they carry around a story that, you know, COVID is not that big a deal. Well, you know, let's just see what happens next because historically these things have tended to be quite important. You know, there's a sort of positioning where there's a kind of business as usual acceptable default reality and almost any piece of new data that threatens the integrity of that story just gets sidelined in favor of that story even though though that story is in fact fundamentally without grounding. How can we accelerate 
a paradigm shift in this regard? Is there some kind of activism or dare I say, uh, Gandhian satyagraha that could bring attention in you know the right ways and force the issue? Um, to me, it's legitimization of panic as a response to modernity. You know, we should have been in continuous hypervigilant screaming mode since the invention of the nuclear bomb. Well, fortunately, it coincided with the invention of the TV, which kind of nullified that, maybe. Right. The TV, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety medications, you know, like we went from a world in which the future of the species was safe. And even if we died, we knew that life around us would go on to a situation where the future is the species is acutely imperiled without ever changing our emotional attitude towards the world that we lived in. Things went from, you know, kind of okay to, oh my God, we could all be winked out of existence in an instant. Isn't this sort of one of the key problems, though, is that it seems, at least to me, correct me if I'm wrong or, or you believe different, that you can't really eat your cake and have it too with regards to modernity and climate change. You can't be going on uh, flights around the world on holidays every year and equally try save the planet. So this this idea of modernity, which you, you brought up, people love it because it's comfortable. So in warning people about climate change and making it a reality, they've got to become discomfortable for quite a while. That's right. That's right. And this is a critical thing, right? How do we persuade people to get better at dealing with the discomfort, which comes from dealing with reality as it is? It sounds sort of like the therapeutic, this psychotherapeutic imperative, but at a cultural scale, at a mass scale. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a lot to do with how we form gestalt. You know, like we build a world model based around a set of data, and usually there's some data that is anomalous and that we just leave out of the world because it doesn't fit. And we're now in a position where the anomalous data pile is beginning to overwhelm the kind of regular, ordinary 1950s, leave it to beaver, false world. And we don't even have a really good name for that false world. You know, somewhere in the nuclear era, we basically just pulled this backdrop down in front of our eyes, you know, stuck it to our hat brim, and we've just had this like kind of, you know, um, set dressing hanging in front of our faces since the nuclear bomb arrived. Like, of course the government is on your side. It's built death machines enough to kill the entire future and wipe out your planet forever. But, you know, they're really good hearted and they're here to take care of us. Right. Yeah. And that kind of relationship between people and information, right? You know, like, come on, guys, like the nuclear bomb is the problem. The climate change is a small problem. The nuclear bomb is a much bigger problem than climate change in its way. Because the nuclear bomb and the failure to react to the nuclear bomb, like that's all us. Um, so I kind of feel like this is the and yeah, I don't wanna I don't want to too find a point on this, but like you know, the attention economics problem starts with how do we break the paradigm that things are okay? And once we've broken the paradigm that things are okay, how do we then help people prioritize what their major emergency concerns are, given that there is such a large number of potential sources of trouble? If I understand correctly, you've been working on this problem from a variety of angles for some decades, and one of your more recent uh, experiences experiments or, or discoveries is that capital and entrepreneurship is one of the probably more effective ways to approach this. It kind of sounds like mm. uh, by building Materium, you're incentivizing the changing of the paradigm by giving people the opportunity to profit from doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
does that align with how how you see it? Because it seems like there's that might be an avenue for accelerating the change if you can make it like a sexy venture of some kind. Well, I mean, government is dead from the neck up. Civil society is dead from the neck up. Commerce seems to be very, very alive right now. You know, I'm thinking here of Elon Musk and Google and you know Amazon. These are all institutions which are doing radical new things with the world. Some good, some bad. But you can't deny that they're getting results better than the governments are typically getting when they go out and try and do something crazy. Um, so I don't think we have a choice about doing this stuff in an activist way as business people. I also think that it's very important that as we get to these points of transformation, we understand who is in charge of the story and what they can do. Because sometimes you think that people are in charge of the story and then you try and change things and you discover the government is in charge. And then at that point, whatever effort you put into changing the minds of the conscious uh, people is largely wasted. You know, you have to be influencing the people that are the decision makers. In a lot of cases, that's not the people in the marketplace. It's the people in the State Department. Uh, just to perhaps take this on a tangent, uh, we, we have a couple of questions here in relation to ideas as we are idea market. We could bring it back to climate change if we want. But we can see wherever this goes. So this this question is completely open. But uh, we'd like to ask you, you know, what's an idea that you're long on, and what's an idea that you are short on, generally? So I want to really hammer this time, right? I got twenty years invested working largely for free on figuring out how to manage hundreds of millions of climate refugees because in two thousand three, two thousand four. I completely gave up hope on any possibility that we were going to avoid climate change by social or technological change, right? I knew 20 years ago we were not going to turn the ship and we were going to run aground right into the heart of this thing. So what is it that I knew that allowed me to start changing what I did with my life 20 years before most other people realized there was a problem? You see? The information that we're exposed to changes what we prioritize. This is what I mean about paradigmatic change right i'm in this position because of an old hippie bastard right and this old hippie bastard runs a thing called world watch institute he's called albert bates and in 1995 he sat me down and said right kid there's this thing called the environment have you heard of it I'm like no well it turns out we've cut down about half of everything that keeps the world stable and we're pumping out carbon dioxide within your lifetime the wheels are going to come completely off i'm like the fuck and because he was somebody that really had his shit together in terms of knowing how this was going to go you, that communication hit me directly like oh you were telling me the truth then it took me a few years to get kind of corroborating evidence and then by luck i found myself in a place where i had an opportunity to act right the idea right if everybody in the world had gotten that transmission from albert bates at the time and it had gone click right he's on he's on twitter as peak surfer right if everybody in the world had gotten that transmission it's gone click we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in now the problem is that the critical piece of information which is we are completely fucked and you must act right it reached so few people at that juncture in history that we weren't able to get effective action organized. Right? You know, what's, what is fundamentally necessary? We need an emergency alert. We need a system of information where somebody can basically go, right, I've been looking at this whole thing of like the Kardashians and Donald Trump 
and you know the the latest greatest you know Netflix TV special, right? And I've just realized that they're not talking about this kind of thing over here, which is sort of like breaking agriculture because we're not able to get the oil industry under control. Hey. And when people get to that point of going, hey, what they're getting fed is a bunch of mainstream bullshit from environmental organizations that are talking about small carbon reductions, which make absolutely no difference to our worlds of survival. Nobody's turning around and saying, look, average middle-class Americans are emitting 70 tons of carbon per year per person. That's pretty much what you get to the people, you know, the people that you think of as being successful middle-class Americans, quarter of a million dollars a year income, average carbon emissions, 70 tons per person, acceptable emissions, two tons per person. There's no way that we can make this lifestyle manage within the carbon budgets that are available unless we completely green the energy grid, at which point nothing that they're doing is emitting carbon because the entire grid is green, including their vehicles. Right. And because we don't accurately communicate the truth about the level of change necessary for us to not break agriculture, what you get is people that are trying to do the right thing environmentally who wind up shopping for different things rather than understanding that we need a root and branch transformation of the core processes of industrial capitalism. Right? Bad access to information. You get to the point where you're about to wake up from the Netflix thing and you think that you're going to worry about the world, and they tell you the answer is that you need to eat less beef. Hey, well, I don't eat beef anymore, I eat chicken, I'm doing it for the environment. Okay, big question though in relation to that, in terms of, because there is a there is a flaw which is trying to be solved here, so I'm trying to get in the idea market thing, which is in relation to the credibility, right? So you're saying the idea that you're long on is that everyone should have access to the correct information, or the, you know the information which will change things for the better, for the good. There, there, there is a fundamental problem underlying that, however, that we have that at the moment with the media, right? They're saying this information is the good stuff for you. So what we need is another system which allows a decentralized form of credibility so you actually do know what you're getting access to actually is the good stuff and you don't have to go through this process of questioning. You know, it's sort of been checked for you. How do you solve that? See how you make the skeptical face? Huh. Right. I make this skeptical face because you think decentralized and credibility have anything to do with each other, right? Um, but you're not wrong, right? You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think the work you were doing was important, right? I would not be wasting my time talking about climate change and mass death if I didn't think the shit that you were doing is relevant to solving that problem. But it's worse than you think, right? Because it's a two-tier problem. There is paradigmatic change at the top, and then there is factual information at the bottom. Right? And the problem that we have here is that paradigmatically, people are stuck in the Cardassians Netflix universe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when they get accurate information about climate information, it doesn't integrate into any kind of substantive matrix that can absorb the information. So what happens is that it goes tink and then it falls to the ground. Right? For example, right, 50 Celsius in Portland, Oregon. Right? 122 Fahrenheit in Portland. Portland becomes hotter than New Mexico. Right? Heck, it becomes hotter than actual Mexico. Portland. Portland. And in Canada, it's the same temperature as Portland. What do you mean Canada is hotter than freaking Belize? How did that happen? Well now, but aren't they aren't they like three and a half thousand miles north of the equator? Yeah, they are. Why is it 122 Fahrenheit over there? Hmm, something has gone wrong, right? So if you already are in the climate paradigm, you get this information and, and it goes like, 
oh yeah, this is really on now. It's on now. And all the climate people that I know, when they see these kind of you know 50 Celsius in Canada, they're just like, finally people will wake up. Uh, maybe not, right? So this thing of you have to be in the correct paradigm before you can absorb news from outside of your framework. The UFO thing, right? I am a bit comfortable with the idea that there might be alien life in the universe or there might be massively advanced technologies we've never seen or we might find an unknown unknown. I see the Pentagon report as like, wow, they're finally going to admit that they've got radar traces of things which are way less likely to be errors than, for example, human observers, right? You've got a radar trace, you've got an optical camera, they show the same thing in the same place. This is as real as we know how to measure outside of a lab, for reals, right? But if you're not in a position where paradigmatically you can absorb that information, dink, and it just falls to the ground, right? So the thing that I think that you have an enormous potential to do here is to force paradigmatic change by beating people with the stick of the free market. That sounds about right. Right? Ha! Boom! Right? So... So beating the Kardashians. Is you on well, about you know, if you are out there and you've got some kind of, you know, something kind of like a prediction market, not exactly, but kind of sort of, right? If I'm in a position where I am betting on the, you know, Netflix Kardashians reality as this is what is real and this is what is important to the world, right? And actually what happens is all of the attention swarms to 50 Celsius in Portland and the Pentagon is releasing a whole bunch of new UFO data. What happens is that my inability to conceptualize that this stuff is important turns into a financial liability and I get kicked in the nuts repeatedly every time something weird happens that isn't inside of my payoff matrix. You see what I'm saying? Right. And what you're gradually doing is you are forcing the arc of, you know, kind of the market Right on the long arc, you're forcing it towards reality because the people that are paradigmatically stuck inside of Kardashian Netflix reality keep losing money to the climate nuts and the UFO nuts and the people that we used to call conspiracy theorists, right? Because they're in a position where they understand when something is important, the other news will come along which connects to that thing which is important, which means that they're buying that feed at a lower price than the other people are who don't realize that stuff is important until it's already exploded. That's pretty much exactly how I have uh, described it. So yeah. The tricky part of this is the paradigmatic thing is super important, right? Because if you don't have the paradigmatic thing, you can't assimilate the news. And the news is a series of events, you know, ding, 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 ding. If you're inside of that paradigm, every time that happens, you're picking up another token. Ding, 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 ding. Because, you know, the news is coming on and it's bolting itself onto your existing structure of reality. And gradually your pile of evidence reaches higher and higher and higher. And that's your reality and you're sure it's true. Right? But if you have the cup the other way up, I will illustrate, all of this good information just bounces off the cup and falls to the ground. Right? You have to be in a position where you can paradigmatically integrate the new information or you don't get a gradual buildup of evidence. Right. All you get is you've had the same information as everybody else has had, but it's bounced off your cup and fallen to the ground. Right. So what you have is a situation where in an idea markets context, <clears throat> all of the cups are turned the right way up. Right. Because you can make money from knowing what will be important. And it doesn't matter which paradigm that stuff is in because the money is blind. You see what I'm saying? 
the money doesn't have a paradigm, right? I happen to think that this UFO thing is important. You happen to think this, uh, you know, climate change thing is important. You know, James over here is pretty sure that what's important is uh, actually the new stuff about money laundering by the global super elite, right? All of those things can exist in different paradigms, but if you're correct about that being important, you will get paid off. <clears throat> now, this also applies to the people that are inside of your kind of Cardassian tube, right? Those people are still going to get paid off for thinking Kardashian stuff is important, right? Because a lot of other people agree with them, but there's no conflict or competition between their paradigm and the paradigm which is handling climate change and UFOs, right? The existence of the Kardashian's reality does not block the existence of the UFO reality in the way that it does on something like a news channel where there's only so much time for the news. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping the difference is the Kardashian reality. Sorry, I'm slightly ranting about this. No, no, I love it. The Kardashian reality. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be doing quite a lot of thinking about this before we started the call. I'm like, oh yeah, we're gonna do the podcast. Okay, let's get ready. So I'm kind of just like, wow, here's the thing. Yeah, bring it on. If you, if you got more rants, please bring it on. Don't let me pontificate. No, no, Kardashian reality. Go down the, go down the. So the advantage with the, you know, the markets are blind model is the Kardashian reality. I'm hoping will be more fickle, given that there's no, you know, sort of fundamental value in it. There's no inherent reason for people to uh, gravitate to representations, a particular representation of the Kardashian reality, than they are to a particular representation of UFOs or climate change or something like that. So even if technically you can still make money from the popularity of the Kardashian reality, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's not going to have a pattern that de-risks it. It's going to be sort of random. It's going to be sort of memeified. Um, and it's also... Um... How do I say this exactly? Um, I had the right word in my head a second ago and it slipped out. Um, it's predictable, right? Kardashian popularity doesn't wane or wax much year on year. And if it does wane or wax, it's on like the Taylor Swift curve for it. Or, you know, Taylor Swift is gradually releasing fame to other artists, right? But the line is relatively predictable over time. You know, by Lee Cyrus, she's on an upward curve. It's relatively predictable. So the year-on-year -year predictability of those kind of things, there isn't enough volatility in the Kardashian market for somebody to make a lot of money speculating on it, right? Predictable trend. It's the equivalent of a blue-chip stock. Nobody's making any money in blue-chip stocks. Whereas if you were a serious UFO person five years ago and you went out and bought a bunch of options on UFO stuff will matter, boy, how did you hit the gold mine? Because right? we're at the beginning of a decade where I'm expecting continuous selective disclosure from the DoD for the next 10 freaking years. I might be wrong about that, but it's certainly the kind of bet that one could make real money on in a way that you can't make a bet on the idea that Khloe Kardashian will continue to be a popular person. There's just no information there to be traded. Um, so this notion that you could basically... So are you, are you short, you're short on the Kardashians then? Um, I'm, I'm completely neutral on them. They're not going up and they're not going down. They're just stuck here like some kind of awful barnacle on the side of a boat. You know, I mean, they're like the living incarnation of New Jersey, even if they've never set foot in the place. What idea are you short on? So um, I'm massively short on religion. I think, I think religion is about to go the way of um, people crapping in toilets and throwing it out, out their windows at night. Um, I think we're in a position where... You know, organized religion has no answers for the problems that are currently assailing the human race. It doesn't give us any help on aliens. It doesn't give us any help on climate change. It doesn't give us any real help on nuclear bombs. Um, 
so I'm of the opinion that organized religion, I stress organized religion, corporate religion is probably going to die very, very soon, within 20 years. Uh, I think it's just going to be a shattering series of revelations of like, oh, this thing doesn't work at all, uh, led by the Catholic Church. Do you have any thoughts on what might uh, replace it or serve that function in the social psychology? So religion has a whole bunch of different functions, right? There is a paradigmatic thing of like, this is what is real. Life is about salvation or life is about the end of suffering for sentient beings or whatever it is. You know, there's a kind of structuring story level of religion. Uh, and then there's a personal transformation story. So I am not happy with the idea of corporatization of psychedelics. You know, I think, I think corporatization of psychedelics is going to be seen in two or 300 years as an enormous negative turning point in this story. But to be honest, you know, I think corporatization of psychedelics is next, and I don't think there's any way around that. So probably what you will get is personal transformation using psychedelics, franchised as branding, and it will look something like Scientology or EST or the Landmark Forum, but they will have access to psychedelic drugs, at which point they really can make that brainwashing stick. And it's going to be terrible, but it's probably that less. That does sound like a nightmare. Doesn't that sound like a nightmare? Because that's what happens if you legalize the use of psychedelic therapies. Yeah. You're going to just wind up with freaking Landmark Forum on MDMA. I can see it now. Like you're in the middle of a trip and you're talking to all kinds of weird luminous beings and suddenly a Pepsi logo comes into view and just passes by. And you know, you have to progress through the series of heaven through a series of microtransactions. If I wasn't so busy with the material, the temptation would be to start exactly that, you know, like partial transformation, cult plus use of psychedelics in jurisdictions where it's legal. I mean, you know, the amount of money that unscrupulous people are going to make playing those games. At least I could infuse it with accurate yoga philosophy taken from my days as Swami Havabadana. Can you tell that story? James, if you don't know the joke, Swami Havabadana has been like a running joke in my life for decades. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't know the joke. Yeah. Oh, uh, so Swami Hav a Banana um started out as a stand-up comedy routine that I would do for friends at parties. <laughs> So whenever I have some terrible, terrible idea, which is like fundamentally unscrupulous and has something to do with human consciousness, it's like, oh, Swami Havabanana will get very rich running this scheme. Oh, it will be very good, very good. Um, you know, it, it's you know, it's it's an awful racist stereotype, but it's one hundred percent accurate. I, I for one would subscribe to that podcast immediately. <laughs> I want, I want Swami Havabanana. He's like the John Stewart of Eastern mystics. Yeah, the Swami Havabanana show. <laughs> So there is high praise. Um, so yeah, I think you know, corporatized psychedelic personal transformation stuff. I think is going to be a huge curse on the future of humanity, and I think it's going to be a gigantic industry. I think it's becoming kind of going to become an American export industry that will rival Hollywood or rock music or blue jeans. Because um, you know, I mean, it's inevitable, right? It's what happens when you finally take MK Ultra and you sell it to civilians in the same way that we took spread spectrum wireless encryption. We sold that to civilians as Wi-Fi. You know, military technology eventually leaks into the civilian domain, and MK Ultra has not yet made the jump across. But when you get civilians using psychedelics in a corporate setting, it's just going to be the conversion of the MK Ultra know-how into a corporate environment. In what ways could we potentially inoculate ourselves against this future other than simply just not participating when it arrives? 
to be honest, I, I haven't really figured out what to do about that other than potentially starting one. You know, I mean, maybe it's one of those games where if you can't beat them, you should join them. Fight fire with fire. Fight fire with fire, could do. Uh, or the opposite advice is tell people to be straight edge. Because I'm now, I mean, I am heavily advising young people at this point not to do psychedelics, right? My standing advice, having seen decades of my hippie peers doing psychedelics, is don't do psychedelics. Like, do them very little and do them in a party environment. Because as far as I could tell, any kind of serious, heavy internal lifting on psychedelics destroys way more people than it helps. Um, I am, I'm generally, I mean, if you told me 30 years ago that I would be down on psychedelics and I'd think they were a terrible idea for people, I would have laughed in your face. But now having seen the way that people turn out, I just don't like drugs anymore. I think culturally they're net negative. People should have been doing hard freaking spiritual heavy lifting and they should have been doing hard political heavy lifting. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So sorry, I'm very ranty today. I do apologize. I want to go back to this thing about paradigms. So paradigms are like hypotheses that people have about a market. The market is a bull market right now is a paradigm. The market is a bear market is a paradigm. The market is going sideways is a paradigm. Um, This sector of the market will experience explosive growth as soon as the FDA approves this drug. Well, that's a paradigm, right? So right now we're in a position where the news shows right? You know, Fox News. Fox News pushes a specific paradigm out into reality and says, this is true, right? Um, CNN, slightly different paradigm, one or two others, right? These things all cluster into a much more fundamental kind of meta paradigm, Western rationalist positivism, something like that, right? The future will be better than the present. Technology is very useful. People are basically good except the people that we make news about. Politicians, they're always terrible, but government is the only way that anything ever gets done in this world, so it's still critically important. You know, that sort of paradigm, somebody, you know, there's probably 12 or 15 core beliefs that are in that structure. Half of those things are provably false in the environment that we're in. Um, If I made a news show, imagine what the Gupta news show looks like. I don't want to have to imagine it, man. Let's do this thing. Well, you see what I'm saying, right? Climate change. Today is worse than yesterday because the carbon is still coming out of the pipes, right? You know, the U.S. still has bases in 151 countries or whatever the number happens to be, right? Maternal mortality in Malawi takes a new plunge. Fantastic. We've really made some progress on that one. However, Botswana still has like a whatever it is 70% infection rate for the following demographics for HIV. You know, if you just continue to talk about how the world really works to people, you wind up with a news show, which is not about the news. It's about all the stuff which is true that they don't want to fucking think about. See what I'm saying? Yeah. The the Gupta Daily Slap. Gupta Daily Slap, right? It's still shit, and people are still dying for no good reason. What the fuck? Right? The only reason that sounds like news even though those things have been continuously true for decades, is because they're outside of the paradigm. So every time one of these pieces of information arrives, it sounds like news. Ding! Ding! That's the same thing you told me yesterday. Ding! Yeah, but you haven't updated the paradigm, so you hear it as new every time. Ding! And then eventually you get the piece of news which changes the paradigm, right? Finally something lands and goes ding, and suddenly somebody goes flump, and they go from like, 
hey, you know, I happen to think that HIV is probably just caused by lifestyle choices, to oh my God, that's an infection, right? And when public health people understood that about HIV in the 1980s, the entire course of the world changed in dealing with HIV. But it took, you know, many, 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 many individual pieces of data before people understood that HIV was an infection, and then more research was required before we knew what was causing it. Right. The, the the entire history of how we went from, you know, hey, there's a lot of cases, a couple, something, Kaposki, something, somebody or other sarcoma among men in San Francisco, oh, to, you know, we've just detected the onrushing, you know, whooshing sound of a global pandemic. That's the same trajectory we're on on climate change. It's the same trajectory that we were on on COVID. We're towards the probably, hopefully, pray God, last third of the COVID pandemic. Half of the American population is still stuck. Uh, you know, the equivalent of AIDS denialism. How, you know, th there's just an enormous lag to change the paradigm to fit the facts. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I have, I have a theory to, that I want your feedback on. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt, though. Cool. No, no, let me, let, me, let me punch through to the thing I've been trying to get to right in terms of Please framing do. where I think idea markets fits in this. Okay. Monetization of paradigmatic change, right? If I'm in a position where I can convince you that your paradigm is wrong and my paradigm is right, and I can show you the evidence and you flip, well, you flip by buying my tokens from me indicating that I've bought into that paradigm. Literally, I've bought into the paradigm, right? So... I amass the evidence that says this is true and news about this will be popular in future. That's the equivalent of a portfolio, a prospectus for a portfolio, right? Hedge funds for hypotheses. 100%. 100%. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Right. So the aliens, right? The aliens, there's a decent chance that these UFO things are, come from under the sea. They certainly seem to go in and out of the water with a fair degree of comfort and regularity. It's in the Pentagon stuff, right? So I have the aliens live under the sea portfolio, and I'm going to go and I'm going to buy in tokens that have something to do with the idea that the aliens live under the sea, right? I then come to you and say, right, I want you to put $2 million into the aliens live under the sea portfolio because if we're right about this, this is going to become $80 million very, very quickly, and everybody's going to be paying attention to this as a topic. Okay, right? And what we're creating here is a system of incentives which pays people to put together portfolios of data that will cause people to change their fundamental paradigm in a way that changes their investment decisions inside of the idea market space. Here's your climate change is real and bad portfolio. Here's your solar panels going to revolutionize life in Africa portfolio. Here's your the Cardassians are over the hill portfolio, right? What we're creating is an opportunity for skilled analysts to put together packets of evidence for different kinds of positions. And right now, we have no way of monetizing that kind of disciplined research. Incentive-based epistemology. Incentive-based epistemology. I have taken an hour to say those three words very, very, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Incentive-based epistemology. And, you know, Materium is also in the incentive-based epistemology business, but we do it in a very, very, very confined space, which is, is this Star Trek toy fake and is this gold bar free of blood, right? You're doing this in a much, 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 much wider open space of the entire cycle of news. And this notion of like, 
incentive-based epistemology, you know, like that's always been latent in the discussions about, you know, like Vitalik's thinking about smart contracts and prediction markets and, you know, quadratic voting and all the rest of that stuff. That stuff is soaked in there, but, you know, it's never been really seriously deployed because everybody agrees about everything inside of the crypto space, right? The crypto people almost entirely operate inside of one overlapped paradigm, which is this stuff is going to take over the world. And other than that, they've got nothing in common. So, you know, we just haven't really seen the application of correct leverage to crack open that problem. Um, but, you know, to me, the exciting part about this is the possibility that you wind up with freelancers taking up the torch of assembling models of paradigmatic change in exactly the way that academia no longer does because academia is broken. How do you get paid for being right? You don't become a professor. You basically become somebody that manages these. But it, yeah, but I think it would. I think it would onboard a lot of academics. It's well. the same research skills, right? And you know, if you have a hypothesis hedge fund, that hypothesis hedge fund. I mean, if you don't understand, you know, like the way that truth is produced, you're never going to be able to run a successful hypothesis hedge fund. You know, you have to understand epistemologically. How do we get to a conclusion here? Well, you know, here's my evidence, here's my rules of inference, here's my prediction, here's my risk estimation, here's my margin of error. You know, if you don't have those kind of concepts at a fairly high level, you're not going to be able to run a hypothesis hedge fund successfully. So I bet you guys are going to have a real interesting decade. Uh, likewise. <laughs> hey, all I do is run a gigantic flea market for the entire world's secondhand stuff. Everyone's got to make a living. Everyone's got a big living. And, you know, okay, so it's a zero friction flea market and it has the ability to, you know, like fix half of what's wrong with industrial capitalism. That's kind of a minor side effect, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's just that's that's the price of doing business. Materium is not a high concept project at heart, right? Materium is about scale. But the thing that we do is relatively straightforward, which is just tell me the truth about the thing that I'm buying. Well, you're selling it to me, so I don't believe you. Get me some other people to tell me the truth about thing, and maybe I'll believe that, right? I mean, it's it's a pretty meat and potatoes operation because if it works, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I buy this, I buy this, I buy this. They turn up at my house at exactly what I paid for. How amazing is that? Oh, it's better than Amazon and eBay, isn't it? Yeah, it's better than Amazon and eBay. Why? Because the stuff that I buy is always the stuff that I get. Oh, yeah, that is really nice. You know, like you're never going to really notice that as a standout feature. It's just like things become predictable rather than occasionally getting ripped off. The stuff that you guys are working on, like, you know, people are really going to notice that. <clears throat> it's very, very upfront and it's very through the front door with a battering ram. And that's good. The world needs that. Sweet. Just trying to stay behind the steamroller, as you as you put it. But it might be a little difficult on this one. Um, You want to be on the right side of the steamroller, but at this point... You know, I mean, the last time we really talked about this thing in detail was probably before we saw fake news about COVID kill maybe 300,000 Americans. Yeah. That kind of thing makes a difference. You know, like you wind up with 300,000 dead people because they thought the wearing masks was communism. Yeah. Eh, that's the steamroller right there. Yeah. All right. Excellent. It really clarifies the, the necessity to the underlying. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just block Fox News and all of these other websites on grandma's web browser, and the only place she can get her news from is an idea market. It's just safer that way. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> Seems reasonable. Um, I have a theory from the, the paradigm conversation. Oh, yeah. What you got? That I wanted to run by you and, and get your feedback on. You're talking about uh, the paradigms being the determining factor of whether or not information gets through and lands in fertile soil, you might say. Mm -hmm. And 
My question is, what determines paradigms? What allows them to change? And the hypothesis that I want to put before you is that it has something to do with social permission. Mm -hmm. It's not so much having more information pile on, though that may be a factor. But if if you're going to pay a really high social cost to change your mind and become a heretic in your community, Mm. it doesn't matter how high that evidence piles, it's still going to be too high of a price to pay. So I think one of the chief things that we have to accomplish is give people a socially acceptable excuse to change their minds, to be weird, to consider things from outside their tribe. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping just trying to make money uh, will serve that purpose and kind of lubricate that shift. Where am I wrong? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, if you are some bright kid in a redneck town and you are you know, paying your way through college by speculating on truth against all of your friends and neighbors. Sounds good to me, right? I mean, it does kind of imply that the smart kids will be making a living from their bedrooms, trading options on news. You know, they're the kind of people who might otherwise have stayed fast asleep at the wheel and instead they're getting pulled into a different relationship with reality. You know, I think that kind of stuff is fundamentally important because it is going to disproportionately affect the bright kids and the thought leaders. Um, but I mean, the other side of this is, you know, what we what we're seeing right now is the formation of these like walled gardens of thought, you know, cult-like ideological formations like the Red Hats, right? And those things are shortable in an idea market's paradigm, right? I can have a hypothesis hedge fund which simply says the Red Hats are wrong about everything and just universally shorts those people. And sure enough, it turns out that, you know, um, um, I don't even remember what drug it was that they thought originally cured COVID. Do you remember? Yeah, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, yeah, hydroxychloroquine, right? So I could have shorted hydroxychloroquine just on the basis that a bunch of Red Hats thought that this stuff was here to save us. Well, whatever it is, they're wrong. They're wrong on principle. They are wrong. And if I'd bet on that, I would have made money. So, you know, this notion that you could begin to take these ideological, you know, balls where people are becoming resistant to truth, and you can just short those guys and make a living doing it, all of that pushes towards a rational news and a rational politics. And this can only be good. I'm glad you feel that way. And I feel obligated to confess that there is a bit of a twist in the shorting mechanism and that it can't really be done directly. Because if, it, if we make it easy to short something directly, then we make it less expensive for uh, elite classes to artificially deflate the ranking of something that has genuine grassroots interest and support. So the way we're doing shorting instead is the only practical way to short something is to long an alternative, long a competitor. Uh, so that the disinterest in the thing that you're shorting eventually overwhelms it. That's the death of it. Um, so for everything we want to short, we have to figure out where are people going to go instead? Mm-hmm. What meets this need better? Uh, what's the, what's, what's, what's the, the balm on the wound that this is only a band-aid over, that kind of a thing? So I'd be interested in what you think that sort of positive version of this is. Because I'm hoping to capture all the mental energy that goes into hating stuff and channel it into replacing stuff. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought about the economics of this enough at all. Um, but shorting is such a fundamental mechanism to markets. I'd be really wary of a system where you block shorting at the start. Sure. Uh, I'd be much more inclined to run shorting and then figure out how to restrict it if you solve problems. 
but I don't know. I got no opinion really. Interesting. Okay, cool. I guess more less on the economic front, but how would you how would what would you long in order to an express a a net short view about red hats? What's the alternative that people go to when they realize the red hats are wrong? Yeah. Science. <laughs> Simple as that. Science. No, just that. Science. I mean, you know, like the place where all searches for truth converge is either science or mathematics. And those are the areas where there is so much action in the world which is anti-scientific or non-scientific. If you just continue to buy science and short everything else, eventually the arc of truth, you know, the, the reality will arc towards that truth. There's a frustration of mine that about science, within science, there's the sort of dichotomy between the Neil deGrasse Tyson UFOs are not important kind of stuff and the science of people who are studying unacceptable things and who are there before everyone else. Like there's a real sort of schism between the scientists who put their reputations on the line and those who don't. Um, that will be a topic for the next time we do this because I got a dash. Yeah. We're out of time. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, man. Just at the beginning of the deep dive on science, we should come back and do another one of these starting with what happens when you start using idea markets for science. Sounds good. Let's pick that up next time because that I need a little bit of time to think about, but I think that'll be an explosive session. Awesome. Um, James, what was your three-word miracle again? It was... Uh, incentive-based epistemology. Incentive-based epistemology. That's how you ought to title this series, this uh, this episode. That's what you ought to call this thing. <laughs> Absolutely perfect ninja sniper execution. <laughs> Vinay Gupta, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we'll put links to Materium and your work in the link below and everyone listening, like, subscribe and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, thank, thank you very much for coming on. Good work, guys. Good work. Just the beginning of the fun.